Today's episode is brought to you by re-recording. That's not even, like, a joke. Listen, I originally had some dumb joke that's already gone and I can't remember what it is to start off this episode. And then, like, a day after I recorded it, they announced that Rockman X Dive's Taiwanese server, a.k.a. the original server of the game that was getting all the new content, is shutting down. And I was going to talk about how, like, gotcha games end, and, like, the inevitability, the, the reason that I did Rockman X Dive as early in the podcast as I did. And then, not a week later, the Capcom Presents revealed Rockman X Dive will live on as a standalone, offline release, free of the gotcha. Excellent game preservation. There are so many mobile games that have just died and been gone. I'm, I'm not able to play Mega Man Crossover. That's not a thing I can do. It's just gone. And second off, an offline version of Mega Man X Dive without all the gotcha nonsense will probably actually be a better game. And uh, re-records and re-records, it has taken me so long to get this episode out because of depression that X Dive Offline has come out and I have played through it and yeah, it's better. And so at some point, a future episode may be Mega Man X Dive again, specifically for the offline, specifically to talk about that. But in the meantime, let's talk about the 1999 Rockman Gold Empire. And also, let's talk about the Battle Network 2 postgame so I can finally get that settled away and move on with my life on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. Today, as I just mentioned, we're covering two games, and if you listened to the last episode, you know why. The second half of this episode is going to be about Mega Man Battle Network 2, because we're going to talk about what the post-game experience of a Battle Network game is like and stuff. But first, we have a short little episode here as I talk about the fourth of the five Taiwanese-exclusive PC games, Rockman Gold Empire. Gold Empire is the last of the Mega Man games produced by Strawberry Software, but while they had previously been doing a whole bunch of edutainment games, Gold Empire surprisingly is not. In fact, it's actually kind of sort of an evolution of Rockboard, which comes as a pretty significant surprise, actually. Like, of all the Mega Man games to follow up on, you picked Rockboard? There is actually a story offered in the manual for this game. Apparently, Wily's quit trying to take over the world, at least until he finds some old plans while cleaning out his garage. And yes, that is actually what the translation I found says. But those plans were for a scrapped idea to turn gold into energy into an ultimate alloy or something like that. And so naturally, Wily decides to enter the world of unfettered capitalism. Base steals part of the plans and gets them to Dr. Light, because apparently he's a good guy now, and it's off to the races to stop Dr. Wily's plan. This game is set up with one to three players. There's always a fourth player. The fourth player is an AI-controlled Dr. Wily, but the remaining players in this game could be Mega Man, Proto Man, Duo, Base, or The Mayor. You know, Mega Man fan-favorite character, The Mayor. <laughs> yeah, there, one of the playable characters in this game is just a dude. A human dude. Black suit, slicked back, blonde hair, sunglasses, 
a dude. Um, I'd say he never appears in anything else, but apparently he's actually in the Archie comics because that's how deep they dig for their references. But it's up to you whether you want to tackle it on your own or whether you want to play three other characters or whatever, but you're always going to be facing Dr. Wily. The game setup actually has quite a bit of variety in it because not just do you set it up for one to three different characters, but those characters can then be modified. And each character actually is a little bit different. Now, there was a little bit of differences in Rockboard 2 with, like, character-specific events and stuff, but there is more to change than just a starting amount of money or what one or two events might do for the character. The game actually uses three core resources. In addition to money, like you would expect of any Monopoly-like board game, there is also a health stat. I'm not entirely sure what causes the health stat to go down. I know you can recover it in various ways, but if you ever run out of health over the course of the game, that is actually a game over for you. It's the same as running out of money. And there's also like a science slash research that I think serves as a measure of how close you are to completing the game, but I don't know for sure. You're going to hear that a lot, by the way, and I'm, I'm going to mention this once up front. I don't speak Chinese, and this game is only available in Chinese. Rockboard has an English translation, and even without the English translation for that game, you could probably prop open, like, the Mega Man knowledge bases list of different tiles and events and items and stuff and be like, oh, okay, I sort of have an idea. I can stumble through this game. No such resources exist for Gold Empire's mechanics, okay? This is going to be me trying to piece together a lot of it from my experience. But beyond those three starting resources that go up and down over the course of the game, there's also four different statistics, which I'm going to call developmental statistics. Rather than like solely being properties, part of this game is around the idea of like building up cities, I think. And so you have four additional statistics on a 1 to 100 scale that are like, if I had to guess, the icons are supposed to stand for healthcare, infrastructure, education, and law enforcement. And I presume this affects different buildings in different ways or something like that. I'm not 100% sure, but that seems about right. What's actually worth noting is that every single character has different default values in the three starting resources and the four different developmental statistics. And you can adjust these. You can choose, for instance, to have a character start with massively more money than they normally would, but that will drag down the other statistics in turn. Or you can choose to like mildly adjust, say, healthcare up about 10 to 20 points more than a character would start with, but that will drag infrastructure down in return, because somehow those two are related. Despite the fact that you have the ability to manipulate these, every single character still tends towards certain things and can only adjust those values so far. So you're probably kind of curious what this random game says about each of these characters as a leader. <laughs> a Mega Man, overall? Fairly well-balanced values, fairly average. He isn't lacking in any particular department, except having the lowest law enforcement score, which seems a little bit weird for the hero robot. But he does also have the highest education score, which is funny. I mean, I guess it makes some degree of sense, actually. It's just not what I would have expected. Proto-Man is fairly similar and gives up a bit of education and starting health to have better values in the other developmental areas, include being tied for the best healthcare. New arrival, the mayor, has atrocious starting health and abysmal education rates, but gets a huge amount of additional starting cash in science and has the highest infrastructure and law ratings. Wiley, who is your opponent, starts well above average at everything except health and 
weirdly his education, which is somehow the lowest? I don't know. That seems like a really weird mix to me, but all right. I guess he prefers his uh, his city denizens dumb. I, I can reason that one. Duo comes with lower starting funds, but starts with the highest health and has great developmental values in everything except education. And base, I've saved for last, because for some reason he's literally just a worse duo. He is tied or worse in every other stat compared to duo. And, I don't know, maybe he's just the hard mode? I figured they would have at least tried to give him some balancing factor, but I sure couldn't find one. But what do all these different things do? Well, let's get into the actual game and I'll try to explain it, question mark? So, the boards and look of Gold Empire are in a three-quarters isometric view. It's not the ugliest thing. In fact, in comparison to my experience with the other Strawberry Soft games, I'd almost say it looks good. It's, I mean, environmentally, it's average to all right in design, but the characters, I mean, they're correct in their basic design, but the proportions are awkward and off, and the animation is super stiff, but it still somehow looks mostly better than the others. The boards themselves, it's worth noting in this game, are completely linear. They are fixed, stable loops. You have no choices to make, no control. You just roll the dice and move on to the that many spaces ahead of you. Despite that, there is three different boards you can choose between. Board number one is a seaside forest setting. Board number three is a quaint European-style countryside. And board number two I saved for last because for some reason it's the surface of the moon, where there's like a crashed space shuttle, and there's Moai heads, and also Stonehenge is there. But because they're all a loop, they are mostly the same board. There might be slightly more spaces on certain boards than others, or like different layouts of the event squares in pre-built cities and stuff, but we'll get to that in a moment. Like Rockboard, this is a property-controlled Monopoly style of game. Essentially every turn, you roll a dice, your character moves that many spaces, and then you enter into whichever space you land on. The event spaces are marked with a question mark or an exclamation mark, and they're really simple and quick. The exclamation marks is Dr. Light basically doing like some kind of festival fortune-telling little ritual with you, and then you get a random event, like other players may skip their next turn, or you might just get an item or something. I couldn't tell what half of these did, but sometimes I was able to piece it together from what happened next. The question mark spaces are a little bit more difficult to discern. Roll basically pulls a roulette for you, and then you get an event that you actually get anywhere from like two to four different choices on. What are these events, and what are the choices, and what do they do? There is zero feedback, and it's all in Chinese, so don't ask me. I do not know. <laughs> but it's the non-event spaces that are at their most interesting here. Typically, if I say a game is like Monopoly, you expect, okay, you reach an empty space, you pay some money, you put a house down, now it's yours, and you can develop that up. That was Rockboard's setup, and then Rockboard expanded it by having it so that if you chained properties together physically, they started, like, amassing and getting more effective in the bundles, and if you really wanted to overpay, you could steal a property from another player. You get the idea. Gold Empire takes those property spaces and adds a lot more depth to them. In addition to just buying a space and setting up a town, you actually have a lot of control over what goes on into that town. 
just buying a property causes a player who goes through that space to actually have to pay you some, of course. But there will actually be facilities put onto that space. You can get, for instance, item shops that will offer another player who passes through there a random assortment of items. And if they choose to buy something, that money goes to you. You can establish a hospital on that space. And then when the player comes through there, they can heal their own health, but the money charged for that service goes back to you. There's other buildings too that I think are around increasing your resource generation and stuff. It actually is a neat system. Interestingly, each board also actually starts with a handful of just neutral cities like this that have the player agnostic, here's a shop and here's a hospital type facilities, as opposed to anything that would specifically aim to force money out of players. And I think you can buy and take over these cities, but I'm not 100% sure. I know sometimes you can sabotage cities. I had Dr. Wiley go through a couple of my spaces and blow my stuff up. I don't know if that's just something he does as a special AI opponent, because I couldn't figure out how to do it, or maybe I just never had the money for it. Because I constantly did not have money in this game, and it's difficult for me to pinpoint exactly why. I can tell you that this is not like Monopoly in the sense of there is a fixed starting location and every time you loop through it, you get money again. That's not how this one works. Instead, you receive an income every single turn. What determines that income? How do you increase that income? I don't know. The game never actually displays anywhere what your income is turn to turn or what's contributing to it. In fact, it doesn't even notify you you have an income. It just shows up in your like funds on the next turn when you see your statistics again. Oh, and speaking of things that are only partially understood, sometimes there's disasters when turns start. Lightning storms, tornadoes, fires, and other things can just randomly happen in random places. What do they do? Hell if I know the game never actually communicates the effect of these events. They just happen and presumably the space is getting damaged. But I wouldn't really be able to tell you if they are because there's no way to check spaces while you're on the main board. The only way to see what's actually going on in a space is to land there, and then you can see the development that's been done. Your literal only interaction between turns is either save the game or roll the dice. And hey, as just a cute aside, all of the characters actually have their own unique like dice rolling interface that looks different and thematic. Real nice touch, actually. But that gets beside the point that this game does not give you access to nearly the information you need. And I'm pretty sure on that one that it's not just me being, you know, unable to read Chinese. It's that the interface in this game is extremely poorly communicative. Just between the poor feedback that the game gives, between the poor ability to look at and examine things an ability to just dig into a menu and look at numbers and see how those numbers might change turn to turn and try to put it together. I tried to piece together like some of the specifics of how this game works, and all I could get was the broad overarching parts. And that's not just me being unable to read Chinese, that's just the game failing to actually provide these important tools. And I think that's a major shame, because... From what I could piece together of this, there might actually be a really neat game in here. One that, like, really needs an update for playability. One that obviously needs a translation. Speaking of which, there is no translation. Nowhere, anywhere that I could find was there a database of, like, here's the different events that can happen. Here's an explanation from somebody else of these mechanics. It is the least understood Mega Man game. At least the other Chinese-only titles to date... 
you can pretty much play them straight up as they are as edutainment games and get an understanding of what's going on and how the mechanics of these games are working. Gold Empire just... It's a mystery, and it unfortunately is going to stay a mystery. Yeah, again, that's just a shame, because there's stuff I wanted to like in here. Before I move on, I've been using the music for Rockboard, because for whatever reason, the version of the game that I have doesn't have music, and you can bet I cannot find the music to this game online. Supposedly there is, but I don't know. It's Rockman Gold Empire, and I played it, question mark. God, I just realized I completely forgot to talk about how slow the game is. You have to literally watch the character walk through even the most empty of spaces, and it's like a 10-second animation. I... okay. You know what? No, we're done talking about Gold Empire. Let's talk Battle Network. When covering Battle Network 1 and 2, I talked about the main game experiences. I made mention of the post-game stuff, but I just covered the main game. Now, the main game took me about 10 hours to finish in Battle Network 2. You can slap another 10 hours onto what I played of the post-game of Battle Network 2, but as I'll discuss, you can sink a lot more than that if you really want to. What does the post-game experience of a Battle Network game look like? For the most part, a Battle Network game's post-game is a completionist dream. I know that seems a little bit weird to call it a dream when it's going to involve some sometimes frustrating grindy bits, but also, essentially the idea is that as you fill out your collections, as you continue to collect more and more stuff to power up Mega Man, you will gain access to harder and harder challenges as a reward. The game will extend outwards to match your growth and power. If you are the type of player who likes seeing a list of things in a game, filling it out to 100% completion, not only do you have a lot of interesting stuff to do to achieve that, but the process of achieving that gets you access to new and more challenging stuff. Hence, a completionist dream. The main mechanism that you need to fill out as you play the post-games of the Battle Network games is your chip library. At various points in the post-game progression, there will be just hard gates that say, hey, you cannot progress past this point, without this many chips. For instance, there's a gate in Undernet 4 that straight up says, hey, you need a star, which is a little marker that appears on the main menu when you've beaten the game, and you need 130 known powers or something like that, which means you need 130 of the 250 battle chips in the game. It is possible for you to have that by this point, but you may have to do some hunting. So, what does that look like in practice? Part of it comes down to tracking down viruses. A lot of the times, you may not have gotten the battle chips from specific viruses as you played through the game. Maybe you just didn't get lucky, maybe you weren't able to defeat them fast enough at the time. It's time to go back and start hunting down all these viruses that you missed the chips from. Some of these can actually be fairly rare. Battle Network 2 in particular has a couple viruses that have some very rare chips that you cannot get any other way, and they only appear on singular specific maps, usually in obscure little computers that you wouldn't think twice about. The good news is that if you are tracking down a rare virus and you run into it once, there is a subchip called Lock Enemy that can be used. This subchip makes it so that your next few encounters in that area, as long as you don't log off, are pretty much guaranteed to be the same fight, and you can use save scumming and a little bit of abuse there to just 
fight them over and over again until you do actually get it. It's just a matter of tracking down where those things are. Fortunately, the Battle Network community was generally pretty good about actually, like, figuring out where to get every chip in the game, because everybody had to undergo this process, so it's fairly well documented. But you'll probably need more than just chips from viruses. There are chips from shops that you'll need to work up the money to buy through fighting or hunting down like green mystery data that has particularly high zeny counts, etc., etc. You'll also need to trade for some chips, which may require you to get certain other chips in rarer codes that might require better busting ranks. You may need to go do certain jobs on the job board in Marine Harbor in order to get a couple unique chips that way. And one of the biggest parts of it is to hunt down the Navi chips. Every Navi chip in the game comes in three versions. And while Roll will give you the three versions of Roll's chip over the course of the game, the rest of them are not so easily obtained. There's two different types, essentially, of ways that you can hunt down the navvies themselves to get their chips. If they were a friendly operator, somebody you could challenge at any time, like Chod or Mr. Famous or Dex, you just go up to them and fight them. And over the course of the game, they will challenge you first with their version 1, then their version 2, and eventually the version 3 of each boss. Higher versions of bosses have more HP, deal more damage, but also have more aggressive and quicker acting attack patterns. In other words, they spend less time just standing around, they move fewer times between attacks, and they attack more often. In addition, a handful of bosses do actually develop some new little tricks. Gutsman gets the ability to start using Area Steel as his HP drops in later versions. Or Shadow Man, quite famously, if you drop him to low HP in his version 3 form, has a single square slash attack he will do sometimes, and he uses the Miramasa chip, which deals damage equal to his missing HP, which, due to the fact that Shadow Man version 3 has more max HP than Mega Man can ever have in this game, can be a guaranteed one-shot if his HP is low enough. Now, defeating the version 2 of a boss is guaranteed to get you their version 1 Navi chip. To receive the version 2 or version 3 Navi chips, however, you're going to have to not just beat the version 3 of the boss, but beat them soundly. To get a version 2 Navi chip, you need to beat the boss in under 30 seconds without taking damage, or generally speaking, under 40 seconds taking a little bit of damage. If you want the version 3 Navi chip, you will have to beat them 10 seconds faster, for instance, about 20 seconds or less without taking any damage. Now, with a cycle of the custom gauge usually taking about 8 seconds, this tends to mean you have to beat them in about 3 or 4 turns. Chips like Fast Gauge, which accelerate the custom gauge's rate, or Full Custom, which instantly in a snap refills the custom gauge and allows you to, like, immediately draw your next hand of chips when you're ready for them, become critical for this. For the bosses that I said are friendly, that are operated by your friends that you can just challenge freely, this is not too bad. For the other ones, however, your Quick Man, your Shadow Man, your Freeze Man, who were just like story bosses, you're going to have to go hunt them down. Their version 2s are located in specific unmarked spots on the net. You will just be running around into some dead-end corner, and all of a sudden you are fighting them. After you've beaten their version 2, log out, log back in, and now their version 3 becomes a random encounter in that specific area. Now, this does mean you can take advantage of lock enemy, but also it means you need to rely on random encounter bosses in order to get these rare chips, which means you'd better be on your best because you can't just expect to both get that lucky random encounter and get that lucky draw of chips. 
that will enable you to defeat them fast enough. You need to have a very, very solid setup. As you flesh out your library, there's also another set of objectives to tackle in Battle Network 2 specifically, and that's the license exams. We did a couple of these as the main story in Battle Network 2, but in the post-game, we have the S, double S, and triple S license exams as well. Each of these requires us to meet an additional requirement. The first one requires us to have completed about half of the job board's quests, the second one requires us to track down a key item that is only accessible past a gate that only opens with the S license on the internet. And the third one requires us to have reached a very high level for Mega Man, I think it's 80? That requires us to have found and bought the vast majority of power-ups and HP memories from across the game. Each of these consists of a quest that is, generally speaking, not that hard. Maybe the hardest one is the spot at the end of the Triple S license exam, where we actually get a duel with Dad, who is apparently the Navi Master, and challenges us to a gauntlet battle of, I think it's like six different version 2 bosses in a row or something like that. It's, it's fairly significant because it is all these different bosses back to back, but you're probably at a power level at that point that it's not that bad. What is that bad, though? is the virus gauntlets that end each license exam. The S license exam has a 10-round virus gauntlet from viruses around where the end of the game was. Not that bad. Double S, you get into a 20-round battle with some, like, post-game early-level fights. Still not that bad. The Triple S challenges us to a gauntlet of 30 back-to-back -back virus fights, starting at about at the end of the game, but ending on fights where if you don't immediately obliterate certain viruses, you are almost guaranteed to get locked back into a corner and just have the absolute garbage beaten out of you before you can even open the custom screen again. And with each of these fights probably taking, like, at least 20-30 seconds real time, or like a minute or more if you don't get lucky draws, we're talking like a 15-20-25 minute just absolute endurance fest, you had actually better include a little bit of recovery and defensive chips in your folder for once, because 30 fights back-to-back -back with endgame strength viruses, without any healing in between, and starting over if you fail, uh, yeah, that's, that's a challenge, alright. <laughs> And what's our reward, you might ask, for doing all of this? As we fill out the library, as we get these license exams, we are able to open up gates that allow us to access the deepest part of the undernet for some extra rewards and new chips, but also to finally access the World 3 area. The World 3 area serves as basically the post-game bonus dungeon, and every Battle Network game from here on out is going to have an equivalent area. This area is particularly special in that you cannot just speed jack out from this area. When you want to leave in order to recover or to go to other places, you have to walk all the way back out. And given that the virus encounters here are the most dangerous in the game by a long shot, uh, that can be a little bit spicy. You definitely want to make sure you are well supplied before you come in here. 
As you traverse here, you will be blocked by a number of different obstacles. As opposed to having, like, a dungeon gimmick like you might expect, instead these are progression checks, and this is again how pretty much every post-game area works. These progression checks will ask you, like, hey, have you successfully obtained these licenses yet? Have you obtained enough chips? Have you obtained enough Navi chips? Have you made it to a high enough level? Etc, etc. There's also a different form of progression check in the form of the Protectos. These are specific to Battle Network 2, and I think a variant of them reappears in Battle Network 3. Basically, this is a fixed virus encounter with just monoliths that stand in specific spots and have specific amounts of HP. And the trick is, is that you have to kill all of them in a single hit simultaneously in order to complete the fight. Every few seconds, they will automatically strike Mega Man for about 200 damage apiece, and you cannot flee from these fights, and there is no way around them either. So, in order to progress down the paths that these block, you will actually have to figure out a way using program advances or navi chips or whatever so that you can actually do an attack that wipes them all at once. These start not too bad, with like the first couple ones having like 200 HP. By the end, there's a spot where two of them are in extremely specific locations. You cannot get any closer to them to use a sword. They have like 620 HP or something ridiculous like that. And there's only a very, very tiny handful of setups that are actually capable of dealing the damage to all of these all at once to get you the win. In terms of rewards, what we get for doing this is a variety of new chips, access to all these new random battles that give us even stronger chips than we could get during anywhere else in the game, but also four, count them, four new boss fights. The first boss, requiring an S license and a level of 70, is Pharaoh Man, who is designed as a floating sarcophagus in the game and is like one of the more controversial Navi designs because either people really like his redesign for Battle Network or hate it. He appeared as a bonus boss in Mega Man Battle Network 1. Here, the basic idea is he's a back row boss who protects himself behind two moving coffins. Those coffins will block your shots, they will fire lasers back at you from time to time, and Pharaoh Man himself will occasionally set up various traps like literal arrow switches on the ground, like an old tomb, or wind to blow you around, or even, I think in this one, a poison statue that will steadily drain your HP, but I never saw it. Mostly, this fight is fairly easy. It's about finding the weapons that can get across or past his various coffin shields to actually hit him. The second boss requires you to get the double S license and at least 14 different version 3 Navi chips. You can include Feral Man in this count if you want, by the way. All of these bosses also have version 2s and version 3s to find. But this second boss is Napalm Man, and this one is probably the nastiest of these bosses in my opinion. He's much more random in his movement than the others, just teleporting around constantly, and while he will stop to fire off randomly targeted grenades, they're dangerous in that they leave behind fire puddles that limit your movement, and also, he still also has a shield in that there will constantly be randomly spawning guns on his side of the field that will get in the way of your attacks while firing back at you. While none of these things individually would be difficult, it is the difficulty of actually landing hits on him to interrupt him locking down your field to make it easier for his guns to shoot you. It's the fact that these things are non-stop and overlapping and just compound on each other that makes Napalm Man difficult. 
Finally, at the very center of the World 3 area, requiring the Triple S license and 200 out of 250 total chips, we will finally reach Planet Man. A weird dude who's literally a globe with various floating Rayman-style limbs, he reveals basically that the World 3 area is a testing ground for potential World 3 like, future operatives. That's why it's in the Undernet, where all the, like, dangerous and criminal navvies go, and that's why it's so difficult, because they are looking for the best of the best. Naturally, Lan is not interested in a membership with World 3, and so it's time to take down Planet Man, who is the easiest of these. Planet Man stands directly in the center of his area, orbited by two planets, and occasionally he throws out a little plane onto your area that's just it literally looks like a little tiny paper airplane that moves back and forth and fires shots. The various planets orbiting around him will block your shots, but can be destroyed fairly easily with elemental attacks, though it's not really worth actually destroying them because he'll just eventually regenerate them with a new elemental planet. I think in the higher versions of this fight, the planets sometimes use various attacks, but you barely notice. The biggest thing here is that Planet Man is in the center of the arena, like Freeze Man, he is completely stationary, and even though he has the highest HP of any boss in the game, coming in at 2200 in his version 3 form, he's also a wood elemental boss, which means any fire attack that reaches him deals double damage. So, yeah, with the amount of power you have to accrue in order to actually fight him, Planet Man is a complete joke. Now, I did say that there's four bosses down here, and the fourth boss doesn't show up until you defeat Planet Man and try to leave. In which case, right before the exit to the World 3 area, you will be attacked by the real base, the Super Navi that Sean was trying to clone. Base simply seems obsessed with finding strong opponents and is said to be possessed of an overwhelming sense of hate. We'll actually go into that more in Battle Network 3, what's going on with him, but this is our super boss. He was a super boss, like I mentioned, in Battle Network 1 as well, but there was absolutely no story to it. Here we actually have some dialogue. This time, base fights basically the same as he did during kind of that joke setup for the final boss. The trick here is that this is kind of base version 2, which means he is much faster, attacks much more frequently, it's pretty consistent that you are getting pelted by this dude. I believe he does have one or two new attacks that he can pull up, such as a gigantic fire breath that is reminiscent of Gospel. Like, literally, he pulls out a copy of Gospel's head to do it, too, by the way. He now packs a whopping 2,000 HP to get through, and also, on top of all of that, he now has a 100 HP aura, meaning that lower damage chips literally will not hurt him until you break that aura, and that aura will prevent damage to him once, and also he will regenerate it a couple times over the course of the fight. Not many attacks in this game are actually strong enough to pop this, but fortunately, Gator is. And if you've built a Gator folder, real base is a joke. Once you take down base, you get the real results screen of the game, showing off your average busting level for bosses, your escapes, your total battle count, and other goodies, and you are rewarded with base's navi chip, which if you go and look in your library, is chip number 248, which means we're not done.
Now, I will note, for my own sanity and because I have done this in the past, this is actually where I've stopped. Please don't expect me to, like, 100 complete every single Battle Network game from here on out, because I'm just not going to. It's It gets increasingly time-sinky. But I do know how the rest of this goes. At this point, you can acquire a grand total of 247 different chips in the library. Doing this causes Base Deluxe to show up as a random encounter in the Final World 3 area. Again, Faster, more damaging, same amount of HP, but instead this time base has a 150 damage aura, which means Gator no longer works to break the aura. You will have to get much more creative and much more powerful with your folder and like really think about how you are going to break that aura and how you are going to take advantage of it. And you're going to have to get good enough at this fight to do it multiple times, because you need to win the base version 2, base version 3, and Life Aura 3 chips from this fight over multiple encounters. Doing this allows you to finally fully finish your library for a complete 250 out of 250 chips. At this point, your title screen will display three completion stars, one for beating the game, one for beating the real base, and one for finishing your library. You can get a fourth star added to your list by completing every program advance, too, if you want to look really fancy. That can require hunting down additional copies of certain chips you already have, because you may need specific codes of those chips in order to actually do the program advances. But we're not done. There is a fifth star in the game, which is where... Oh, there was no way in hell I was doing this. There's actually 260 chips in Battle Network 2. To get this fifth star, you need to go net battle other players. Specifically, other players who also have a 250 out of 250 library completion and have defeated real base. When you do, there is a chance that after battling, a player's reward will randomly be replaced with one of 10 secret chips. I don't know what the reward rate is on these, like I don't know what the chance of this happening is, but I've heard as low as 1 in 32 of this happening, and there are 10 different chips. Now, fortunately, you can trade chips with other players. You can help each other fill out your library. You can, like, if one of you does win one of these chips, you can trade them back and forth to put them in both players' library. But it's still quite a bit. Still, you get all 10 of them. Now you have 260 libraries entries and your fifth star, and you're done, right? Well, no, because there's actually 265 chips in Battle Network 2. The next five chips are the event-exclusive chips. Gateman SP and a series of elemental Gospel Breath chips, Navi summons with extremely high damage, but the X chip code, which is completely unusable with anything else in the game. If you were playing back in the day on the Game Boy Advance, Congrats, you're going to need a Game Shark to get these, because there is no longer a legitimate way. When I say event-exclusive chips, I mean it. That's what you had to do. You had to go to a real-life Mega Man Battle Network 2 event. If you are playing the Wii U Virtual Console release of the game, first off, congrats on getting your hands on that before the Wii U eShop shut down. Access the network menu. The Wii U version does not have any sort of multiplayer, but for the Wii U releases of each game, they made it so that accessing the network thing activates any, like, event-exclusive or trade-only stuff in your game. So you will receive a copy of the event-exclusive chips and all of the secret chips just bam right in your folder. Certainly the easiest way to get full completion. If you're playing the Legacy Collection, there's some added functions to the game which allow you to just claim these chips at your leisure. Cool. So we're at 265 chips, right? We've got full library, full program advance, beaten every single boss, all the secret chips, all the event exclusive chips. Wrong, there's a 266th chip. And this one 
actually is really interesting because it is a feature that no other Battle Network game does, hard mode. Once you have the five stars on your profile from getting all the way up to chip 260, there is a code you can enter on the title screen that starts up hard mode. Hard mode is a separate save file that is tracked independently and stored independently, and it has four changes. One, you cannot play with other players. You cannot use the network functionality. No net battling, no trading, you have to do this all on your own. Second, enemy damage is increased by about 50%, about what you'd expect from a hard mode. Third, enemy HP is increased by 50%. Yes, this is just a numbers tweak, but it is important to remember, higher enemy HP means that it is more difficult to defeat the enemies quickly. Busting rank, and thus your rewards, are tied to how quickly you defeat enemies, which means you are much less likely to receive new chips to upgrade your folder, which will make it harder and harder to defeat enemies quickly. You can see where this becomes a self-feeding cycle that actually is more important than the damage or HP upgrades. It is more difficult to get any power upgrades. But most importantly, it also massively upgrades every forced virus encounter throughout the main game. And I mean massively. During the main game, you will rarely encounter enemies that are beyond what you already encountered during any sort of forced encounter or license exam gauntlet. During hard mode, you will start facing post-game enemies, like, around the time that you're fighting Quickman. This is the actual secret hell part of hard mode, is that these battles become very difficult. They do not care about the fact that you do not have the HP or tools to survive these fights. They are putting you through them. And some of the most unfair virus encounters I have ever seen in Battle Network are included in these license exam five battle gauntlets, turning them into some of the hardest things I've ever had to do in a Battle Network game. Because you do not have the power at this point, especially due to the hard mode cycle, to actually just obliterate these fights and win them before they become dangerous. There is a fight where it just drops a satellite virus, which moves through every single panel, breaking every cracked panel that is the entire field, and hitting you with no way to avoid it, unless you specifically have spent bug frags on air shoes, a chip that is useless in every other situation in this game. <sighs> I've been through hard mode a couple different times, because you can find, like, if you are emulating the game, it's not that hard to track down a save file that's at the end of the game with all the stuff ready for you to tackle hard mode. It's a lot of fun, but it is actually genuinely very challenging. Never mind the fact that Gospel at the end of the game has 3,000 HP now. Now, interestingly, you can go straight into the post-game in hard mode, if I remember right. You can actually challenge a lot of that, but due to an oversight with the way a specific virus works, it's not actually possible to get every single chip in order to reach base deluxe. You basically stop at real base. But the post-game isn't going to do anything for you other than self-satisfaction. Defeating Gospel is the major trigger, which causes, just quietly, with no fanfare, a Sanctuary chip to be added to your folder back in the main game in a random code. This chip actually turns your entire side of the field into holy panels, which halves all damage that you take, which is actually insanely powerful for multiplayer purposes, especially if combined with a Life Aura 3. For all the work that this is, if you want to become a net-battling god, it's worth it. But it's a lot. It is so much. But that so much is also part of the appeal of why people love Battle Network post-games. There is so much to do, there is so much to complete, there is almost always, for what feels like forever, a bigger, better next challenge to undertake, and it keeps scaling up with you. And that is really cool. I've heard a lot of people say that Battle Network post-game experiences are some of their favorite RPG post-game experiences because of that continued power growth and scaling, and really pushing you and the game to go as hard as you can. 
On the other hand, like the rarity of some things and the frustration that can emerge sometimes in just like trying to get all the money to buy these super expensive unique chips and it can be work, but that's what the flow of a Battle Network post game looks like. In the future, when we talk about the other Battle Network post games, I'm going to cover them in the episode, but it'll be like an eight or nine minute section at the end, and that'll be it. I won't be going through like, what does the full process look like in this way again? But I do enjoy Battle Network 2 still, even after the post game, I like it quite a bit. Although I do think it's worth noting, the Battle Network post games tend to show one of the core flaws in Battle Network's design in the chip codes. And I know some veterans are going to be mad when I say that, but listen, it wasn't so much an issue in Battle Network 1, because you can just pick three chips and slap ten copies of those chips into your folder for an game. In Battle Network 2, the post game got a lot more difficult, and the restrictions on your folder got a lot more significant. And when you start running into stuff like shadow viruses that demand you have swords hanging around, you have to think about the fact that, like, base deluxe can only be hit with damages over 150. It starts narrowing down the number of tools that are actually viable at the power level. And when you have to focus on those tools, the way you build folders is to grab one or two of those tools, build a folder around that and around that specific code, and everything that doesn't match into that code gets tossed out the window. Which means that despite the huge chip variety in the Battle Network series, a lot of the times it's very hard to justify using specific chips because they don't fall into workable codes. The games are going to get better over the course of the series with this. I know Battle Network 6 actually has a huge variety of, like, multiplayer competitively viable chip code options, but, um, for Battle Network 2 at least, your endgame folders are pretty much always B code, R code, and or G code. Each of those codes has a big program advance to build around, like Gator or Life Sword 3, but because you want to maximize that efficiency, any chip that isn't B, G, or R code is probably not making it into your endgame folder unless they are so obscenely powerful that they work as literally the only chip you bring in on a turn, because that's the penalty of going off code, is sometimes you just have to do that in order to use those chips, and that is why there is a problem with it, and it really becomes more apparent when you hit the post games. I wish I had a better observation to end on here because we're basically in the conclusion, but yeah, uh, that's the Battle Network post game experience. We have just done basically two episodes on Battle Network games back to back, and so I'm going to take a break from the Battle Network games, but expect that we're going to have to dive right back in very shortly because, like, a bajillion of them popped up all at once. I'm not sure which game is going to be next. I have my suspicions. I think I know what I want to tackle next. And then probably almost immediately after the next one, we'll be right back to Battle Network. So, if you've enjoyed the episode, feel free to hit me up at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Follow on Twitter at whatamipodcast4, using the number 4 to be notified of any uploaded episodes. Follow on your podcast provider of choice, or stop by waipf.podbean.com for direct downloads. Thanks for listening, I've been Garlisle, and just remember, if having to net battle with another player dozens of times in order to get secret chips sounds like a little bit exclusionary for locking stuff off to requiring you to find other people, don't worry, Battle Network's about to get a lot worse about it.